while Peter was saying, we should stay up here forever, a cloud came and overshadowed them on the mountain. And they were terrified as they entered the cloud. And from the cloud there came a voice that said these words, This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. Uh, Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. I think honesty is a pretty good thing that we should be striving for in the church. While we are steeped in a world of deception, when we never quite know who or what we can trust, the church, at the very least, should be a place of transparency. So I'll start with this. This has been one of the longest and the most difficult weeks of my life. I traveled to St. Louis, uh, Missouri, with two of my closest friends who happen to be United Methodist pastors, uh, with whom I produce and publish a number of podcasts on a weekly basis, and we weren't really sure what to expect in St. Louis. We had press passes, so we sat high above the arena, and we got to watch everything that happened. We were witnesses to every moment of the conference. We tried to write down or record what we saw, what we felt, And we also reached out to people on all sides of the LGBTQI inclusion or exclusion debate so that we could share as best as we possibly could what was going on, but also what was at stake. So we put out a conversation we had with a pastor who was fired without trial for presiding over a same-sex union. We talked with a man who is the president of a conservative lobbying group who was strongly advocating for the traditional plan. We interviewed a retired bishop about his experiences throughout his career and how it led to a moment like this one. We spoke with a gay pastor and his partner. We reached out to a lot more people who simply said, I don't want to talk about it. And all the while we waited. We waited. We watched the legislative angling in which people from all sides of the spectrum argued for their vision to become reality. We watched as protesters stood up to sing hymns in order to drown out people of an opposing viewpoint. We watched as bishops struggled to keep the room in order as different proposals were brought to the floor. And then on Tuesday afternoon, after all the fighting and debating, the vote came before the delegates of the General Conference. They were simply running out of time and they needed to get something settled before it was all over. Because incidentally, we were on a time crunch. We had to leave that arena promptly at 6.30 because they needed to dump tons of dirt on the floor in preparation for a monster truck rally that was happening there that night. Friends, I tell you, God has a tremendous sense of humor. Witnessing what we were doing as a general conference only to say, I'm going to bury what you've done under dirt. It took exactly 60 seconds for the delegates to cast their votes through their electronic devices. We had to wait 60 seconds for the future of the church to be discernment. And and for 60 seconds, I'm sure that most of us in the room were asking ourselves the same questions. Would the global United Methodist Church adopt the traditional plan that continues to ban LGBTQI persons from ordained ministry? Would the church double down on punishments for clergy who preside over same-sex weddings? Would the language of incompatibility be reinforced and therefore resonate across the globe? We waited for 60 seconds. You know, God, God does a lot of ungodly things in the Bible. A lot of ungodly things. 
We could expect that God in the flesh would sit in a particular place and wait for people to come to him. But Jesus, he goes walking all over the place. We could expect that God would share a clear and a cogent vision for what it means to live a faithful life. But Jesus, he tells all of these strange and bewildering stories that we call parables that leave people like you and me scratching our heads on the other side. We might imagine that God would command people to tell everyone about this Messiah in their midst. But Jesus usually says, shut your mouths. So it came to pass that Jesus calls Peter and John and James and they go up on top of a mountain to pray. While Jesus was praying, his face changed, his clothes became dazzling white, and suddenly two men were standing next to him, Moses and Elijah. And Peter and the others don't know what to make of it. Scripture even doesn't even tell us how they knew it was Moses and Elijah to begin with, but ever eager Peter makes this bold claim. He says, Lord, why don't we build houses up here so we can stay up here forever? It's like Peter wanted everything to stay the way it was. It's like Peter was afraid of the reality that was waiting for him and his Lord when they walked back down off the mountain into the valley. And it's in that precise moment of Peter's rambling, a cloud comes, it overshadows them, and they were terrified. I've always loved the story of the transfiguration, my whole life. It's this high point in the Gospels, both literally and figuratively. Whatever the disciples thought they knew about Jesus, it takes on a whole new meaning of power and of majesty and of might when two of the greatest heroes from the Bible are on his left and his right. And moreover, these two figures, they're just people. They represent the whole of the Old Testament. Moses is the law. Elijah is the prophets. It's a great moment. It's a great moment for Christians, for preaching and teaching, because everything changes after this divine declaration. All eyes are now trained on Jerusalem. It's like the team is huddling together for one last conference before they realize there's no turning back from the cross. And then this cloud overshadows them and everything they're doing. And it says the disciples were terrified. I was terrified this week. I imagine I wasn't the only one. Because in waiting in that particular moment, it felt to me like what it must have been like to wait with Peter when the shadow came and overshadowed them. So much would hang on whatever happened next. Whatever word was uttered, whether vote was cast, so much would hang on this particular moment. And so throughout the arena in St. Louis, there were a number of screens displayed throughout the conference that would display the occasional vote. And after the requisite 60 seconds, the results were made available with everyone to everyone with eyes to see. 438 votes to 384. 53% to 47%. The traditional plan had passed. 53% to 47%. The traditional plan had passed. What happened next was a very strange thing to behold. Because at first, the room was frighteningly quiet, unlike it had been the previous days. And suddenly, a group of delegates stood up from their seats, and they began to gather in the center of the room in this cross. They had pins on that said, no schism, keep the church together, we're better together. They had pins with rainbow flags. 
Some of them had pins on and said, I'm a gay pastor. And these people, they gathered in the middle of the room and they began to embrace each other in tears and despair and in mourning. Because in that vote, they realized that some of them there will never have a place in the United Methodist Church. Or at least they feel that way. Some of them realized that the future that they hoped for, the United Methodist Church, had just been stomped out. And so they held on to each other. I swayed back and forth for a few moments, and then someone started to sing. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. And then something even stranger happened. As this group of clergy and lay delegates were gathering in the middle, weeping, grieving, another group of people stood up. And they made their own circle. And at first I thought they were going to join the people in the middle, but they made their own circle to the side. And they started singing their own song. And they started dancing and they started clapping. They started celebrating what had happened. No church is of one mind. It's just not possible. But in my life, I have never seen such a disparity between the heights of celebration and the depths of suffering an arm's length apart than I did this week at the General Conference. To dance in joy while others weep in pain is just about the most unchristian thing I can think of. And it happened at the General Conference. We call ourselves the church. When the disciples cowered in fear as the cloud overshadowed them, they waited. They waited for whatever would come next. And when the voice had spoken, it said, This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. And then the disciples found themselves alone with Jesus, and they didn't say anything about it to anyone. There were a lot of people at the special general conference last week. There was plenty of talking, there was plenty of fighting, there was plenty of debating, there was plenty of arguing. There were quite a few moments when the Bible was lifted up and used as a weapon to knock somebody down for trying to make a different argument. And though we started the whole thing in prayer, and though we had a cross up at the front of the room for most of the time we were there, there was one person, only one person who was conspicuously absent from everything we did, and that person was Jesus. I heard a lot about what it says in Leviticus. I heard a lot about Paul. I heard people quote precisely from John Wesley, but Jesus was an afterthought. I honestly don't know where Jesus was last week, as he sure wasn't at the general conference. In fairness to our Lord, it felt like he had better things to do than witness our devolution to an institution whose motto is do no harm. That's a great motto to have do no harm. But it's only good if we do it. And frankly, it's a really low bar. We should be doing a lot more than doing no harm. It seems like we've spent so much time listening to ourselves that we've forgotten what the voice said from the cloud. I don't know what the future of the United Methodist Church looks like right now. I'm not even sure I know what it means to be a United Methodist anymore. It's going to be very hard for us to keep that beloved slogan, open hearts, open minds, open doors. 
From the time that Peter quaked in fear on top of the mountain, Christians have always known that what we've been taught about what God once said is not always the same thing as what God is saying today. Christians have known since that horrific moment where the crowds chose Barabbas instead of Jesus that voting and democratic decision-making have lots of flaws in them. Christians have always known since that first Easter morning that resurrection, it's a good and wonderful thing, but it only comes through the cross. In a few moments, we're going to come to the table. As countless Christians have done before us, we do so as a United Methodist Church, whatever that means. But more importantly, we do so as disciples of Jesus. Because despite what a book of discipline might say, there are no terms and there are no conditions on what God has done for you. Nothing can preclude us from the love of God made manifest in Jesus Christ. And so when you come, I pray that you do so with hope and with humility, with repentance, with grief. Most importantly, that you listen. You listen for that voice calling out from the cloud. Listen to Jesus. So I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God now and forever. Amen. Amen.